Hello, listeners. Hello. How are you? They don't respond, Lee. Really? <laughs> It's been a bit of a long break, hasn't it? Sorry about not um, posting a podcast for a while. Uh, it's been busy. <laughs> you might have noticed there's been an election. Someone came up to me at the market the day after election night, which we spent, of course, memorably chained to a Masonite desk for eight hours with Scott Morrison, my normal Saturday night activity. And um, <laughs> the Red Room of Pain. Sorry. I still haven't weed. I thought <laughs> I'd just see how long I could go. Do you know, I just did not even need to wee when we got off that set as well. It was just like I was so plugged. <laughs> I thought there'd be this sort of unmannerly scramble between you, me and Penny Wong for the, you know, two bathrooms in the ABC green room level one. But no, I reckon I, I actually had a glass of wine before I really yeah, had to go um, anywhere. I sculled a whole bottle of water because I was just thinking, because I hadn't really been drinking since lunchtime, I was thinking... What am I doing to my body? I was a bit worried about what was going oh, on. Oh, no way. I just jumped into it. Like, you know how in France, um, the last few days of a snail's life are when they're put on sawdust to clean out the snails' digestive system so right. they can then become escargot? Right. Having... No, I didn't know that. But yeah, so that. That's yeah. normal snails are running around on dirt and whatever. But when they're about to become, a, you know, a table item, they get put onto sawdust, which they don't eat. So it's kind of... So they get starved. Gets, yeah, oh, they, their system gets cleaned up. Yeah. That's the approach that I took. <laughs> no solids or liquids after 2pm. Yeah, that's basically what I did too. Um, mm. And it paid great dividends, yeah. I thought. Yeah, you lost um, your mind at about midnight. Yeah, that was, yeah, the blood, the lack of blood sugar by uh, <clears throat> around that time was certainly starting to bite. The greatest, the greatest moment for me, I thought, was um, at about 11.30, <laughs> where um, Penny Wong just looks over at me and says, um, when do we get out of here? <laughs> I just said... <laughs> Uh, I have no idea, Penny. I think we're here for the duration. She's like, what? But I just, what? She did look sort of horrified. Yeah. My favourite moment, and I thought I was about to dissolve into a Chat 10-like yeah. bout of complete cry hysterics, was when I said, oh, words just come through that the Prime Minister has now left his residence at Point Piper and is en route to the Wentworth Hotel. And that's about a 10-minute trip for those of you not in Sydney, just so we should be expecting him Im imminently. And <laughs> muttered in my ear, unless he's catching the bus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I thought I was just going to burst into tears you of hysterics. lose it at that point. Because I was it envisaging was... Malcolm, like, standing on Oxford Street, noodling around on yeah. his Apple phone. Where is the 333? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It says here there should be one at 12.06, and yet I don't see any running down Oxford Street. Who's he? <laughs> that was pretty great. My favourite moment, I think, um, although I know I've already nominated one, but... Um, there was some point late in the evening where Scott Morrison was just like taking the opportunity to just rant endlessly about com coalition policy points. Like it was just a wall of <laughs> messaging sound. And anyway, when he kind of stopped or paused for a second, I just said, and uh, in other news, I really feel like a pizza. <laughs> Sent me pizza. It was so lovely. Hey, speaking of it was people, really nice pizza. So thank you. Speaking of people sending stuff, there for you on the table is a book that was sent to you by a listener called Eleanor Betts, who oh. sent me uh, one as well. And it was one of those things I like that Chat Ten people do, which is her friend wrote the book, oh. which is called Portable Curiosities by Stories Julie by Coe. Julie Coe, K O H. Oh, Amanda Lowry says Julie Coe is a rare <laughs> talent. Her stories are clever, surreal, and darkly funny. I'll put that on my pile. Thank you. Yes, so, that's very nice. In your message advising me of this largesse, 
I feel sure that you mentioned that there was some baking that came with it. No. Mm. <laughs> yes, there was some baking that Which came with it. Which you've eaten. Yep. Um, you assholes. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be seeing you. That's the only reason I hate it. So. Please take this peanut caramel slice as a thank you for many hours of entertainment. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it was delicious. <laughs> Thanks, Eleanor. <gasps> you monster. I shared it around with the people at work. It was really tasty too. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Good to hear. Um, anyway, the election night broadcast was sort of... <clears throat> I hesitate to say it was fun, although it was sort of fun in a strange way, but it was a very unique experience, don't you think? Yeah, I reckon um, I'm always so excited about election night because it, it's the point at which everybody's ridiculous theorising and um, hypotheticals and jibber-jabbering of the previous, in this case, eight weeks, thank you, Malcolm Table, um, actually pans out. Like, you, you get to know what people actually think about this stuff. Mm. And the, the extraordinary thing about that night was that it just became clear hour after hour that the national response to that campaign was a giant kind of shrug of the shoulders. I mean, mm -hmm. and to come out that close... And a couple of days ago, there was this amazing moment where the Electoral Commission posted the breakdown of votes after preferences were distributed between the two major candidates. And out of about 11.5 million that had been counted, the totals for each party were 242 votes apart. Oh, just Isn't incredible. That, it's so extraordinary, that kind of pattern of group behaviour. It's so freaky. Anyway, the, the night itself um, was so interesting and we all had access to, for the first time, Anthony Green's uh, exciting software package. I love to get my hands on Anthony Green's package. Uh, and it was just, you could do anything with that program. Like you go, show me all the seats that have the most votes counted. Now show me the ones in which the swing is greatest. Now just show me Tasmania. Now just show me the seat of Mayo. <laughs> now show me inside Anthony's crypt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it was... Also, I got worried at one point early on because I could see that you, Chris, and Penny and Scott, all of whom had been given a computer, it was like a kid in a candy store, as yeah. you just described. And I thought, no one's talking to me. No one's yeah, looking no. at me. No one's paying attention because they're all deep in their computer bunker. Well, Scott and um, Penny certainly were just getting a feel of just how exciting this machine was. It's like <laughs> being given a Harley and just thinking, whoa! So, yeah, there was a bit of that. But yeah, Don't you think Anthony Green is just mind-blowingly amazing? My, my real worry, like, I mean... This is up there in my 3 a.m. worry slot along with, you know, what happens when the world runs out of helium and, you know, um, all that stuff, um, dead mangroves, um, is what about when the world runs out of Anthony Green? Like, I just, how do you, how do you breed a replacement for Anthony Green? Now, he's in very great health. He's one of those irritating men in Lycra that <laughs> cycles everywhere. I mean, he's, there's no reason why he couldn't just absolutely bat on for decades. Look, but I'm so concerned about that. He's a cyclist in I... Sydney. I just don't want him to be rubbed out. What would we do without him? It would be... Oh, be... Look, frankly, you could have that broadcast hosted by Big Ted. As long as Anthony kept yeah. doing it, it'd still rate <laughs> two million or whatever it gets. Like, Thanks, Jemima. Just... 
Oh, by the way, congratulations on the Play School cameo. Could that have come at a worse time? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm just getting all these tweets about you overexposed bitch. I'm like, oh God, they're going to see email about your Play School cameos on on Sunday, Sunday morning. I'm just thinking, mm, great. great. <laughs> anyway, I'm gonna I'm retiring from television for the next few months. I I uh, I raise your overexposed bitch with biased slut. Oh, You're yeah. a play, play school. You biased slut. <laughs> yeah, I liked biased slut. Mm. Yeah. I had one that um, had a lovely tweet that turned up the evening that we had kitchen cabinet with Malcolm Turnbull, and some lovely person tweeted to me, "There are traces of fecal matter on your tongue still from that interview." Oh. Which is like, wow, what a really lovely level of detail to go into anyway yeah the the social media it's i mean i I don't i'm not on facebook for work so i only see twitter really so i'm talking about twitter but yeah it seems to get particularly feral in i remember last election campaign too because i guess the stakes are higher and so all these feral zealots sort of come out of the woodwork it's just bizarre well people are just you know they're passionate about it and they because if you are um you know, of one political stripe or other, mm. then watching election broadcasting is always infinitely maddening because you want mm. you want your opponent to be asked harder questions yeah. and your person to be shown a little more love, you know? So yeah. you, it's amazing you get into this strange Doppler effect where you're, depending on what night it is, getting all this hate mail from, yeah. from people from one party or the other. I, it's got... hilarious. I was getting a heap of hate mail last week about um, being in love with John Howard. Well, that is clear. And That's then... very clear. That's a matter <laughs> then... of historic. But the thing that was hilarious was thinking, oh, man, actually I was in Washington reporting on the Iraq lead-up as it was happening and was getting smashed by Richard Alston, the then comms minister, for being yeah. a lefty and not yeah. being in favour of the Iraq war. Wow, what a revolution I've had. pro-Guantanamo book as well. <laughs> yeah, that was right, so exactly, interesting. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, anyway. so during the campaign, because it was just so busy and full on, I basically didn't, I just had a social blackout, so I didn't really do anything. Yeah. So mm. all I was doing was really going to work, and then I'd come home and go to bed and read books. So I've actually been reading quite a bit. Oh, right. But actually, well, before I go into that, I'd like to talk about something even more exciting, yeah. which is your recent television viewing. It's, it's a pity this is a uh, an audio medium, because <laughs> the oleaginous smugness that is just spreading over this woman's <laughs> face like an oil slick on a penguin is <laughs> just very difficult to describe in any other terms than those I've just used. Now, uh, yes, I have been watching The Americans. Now, this was this was forced upon me. Because, Not by me, by no, Jeremy. No, Jeremy, who I think listened to that discussion that we had on when I get a minute about my, I think, 10 to 15 year resistance to his... Um, <laughs> preference that I watched that movie The Seventh Seal Uh, so I think he now views you and him as being uh, in lockstep yeah right so uh, there was this kind of um, evening last week where for once you know kids are in bed and I didn't have to do any work it was just like whoa this is weird (laughs) and so he uh, just dialed up Episode one, series one of the Americans. And it just uh, horrifies me to admit that I was just gripped straight away. It's so good. It's so good. And now I'm just smashing through that series. Oh, really? Yeah. What are you up to now? Which... So I'm up to, um, I think about, uh, I'll be about episode eight or nine 
Right. So um, it's just um, they've done an incredible job, and as I think I have said to you in the previous fifteen thousand times we've discussed it, it is like a Russian doll. Where, like, I agree, I loved season one, and I thought it was good, and then it just gets deeper and deeper, and then they unpack the doll, and there's more in there, and they just keep unpacking. I'm already it. massively anxious about oh. everybody involved. The current, I just watched last week the season finale of I think it's season four or is it five, whatever mm-hmm. the latest one is. And for some of that season, um, I actually I was struggling physically to actually watch it because my feeling of yeah. dread yeah. and impending doom was just so overwhelming. This series is a, like I'm going to do this in 30 seconds without your habitual kind of Dostoevsky and <laughs> complexity. Um, so it's about this couple who are Russian spies. They were introduced at an arranged marriage in Russia um, and posted into suburban uh, Washington D.C. And they have two children they had in, in America and they are deep KGB agents and nobody knows who they are because they look like Mr. and Mrs. Normal except that Mrs. Normal is a knockout. Um, yeah, she's, she's played beautiful. by um, Kerry Russell. Kerry Russell, um, did you watch Felicity? So that was no, how I she came to Felicity. fame. Right? So Felicity was this show about... Uh, she was a college student in New York City who had gone to this particular college because she was in love with this guy from school who wasn't in love with her. And it was sort of a, I guess, late 90s type show. And she had the most beautiful, very, very curly hair, like even right. curlier than your hair, like very curly hair. And um, everyone loved her hair. It was so amazing. She came back for season two and she'd shorn it into like, you know, just a short, not not a number one, maybe like a number six right, or something. Right, so a sort like, of pixie. Pixie, pixie short with like a few little curls, <laughs> but generally pretty closely shorn to her head. Global scandal. Ratings yeah. for Felicity Dive. Everyone, everyone was watching for the hair. Same reason I watched Nashville for Connie Britton's hair. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Oh, anyway. Um, well, they haven't made the same mistake this time because her hair oh. should get actually some sort of acting award. It's it's straightened, but it's in that kind of lush tresses sort of thing. So even when she's kicking some FBI agent <laughs> in the nuts, she's sort of still brilliantly quaffed, but in a kind of hot, sexy way. It's great. Um, there's a lot of sex-based um, uh, clandestine. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's so good. And a lot of disguises but, um, and stuff. The, the only thing that slightly distracts me about the whole thing, and I, I love it, I just, you know, whatever I'm doing, I would rather be watching it, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. But <laughs> the only thing that slightly distracts me is that the husband, Philip, Philip uh, looks a bit too much like Peter Van Onselen for me to really ever... Oh, I think he looks a bit like his haircut looks like the clown on The Simpsons. Like, you know where it's a yeah, bit... Yeah, there's a bit of that. But there's, too... there's shades of Van Onselen. So every now and again, it's going... Okay, I'll have to have a look at him. Yeah, have see. another look. Also, he's Welsh. And so, oh, you know, yeah. I listen to that podcast that Slate does about the Americans. They talk about every episode. Oh, gee, it's oh, yeah. really good. Yeah. Um, I'm not quite there yet. He occasionally comes on and he's like, oh, fiddly dee potatoes. <laughs> yeah. He's like, it's like, oh, my God. He's so, um, and Martha. It's like all those RSC actors in The Wire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like when um, Dominique. <laughs> this um, is the winter of Mc- our discontent. Mc- Make glorious summer by the sun of York. McDonald's shows up and he's like, oh, good day, governor. Yeah. Um, or actually it was, um, Idris Elba, who just seemed so American in that show, he was Stringer Bell. Yeah. Then, oh, yeah, God. And I just yeah. blew my mind that yeah. he was actually British. Yeah. Um, anyway, well, I'm very, 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 <coughs> Look, very happy you. about I just, that. You know, I, yes, without any uh, hatred in my heart, I can say <laughs> thank you so much. It's and a also, real gift. I'm, thank you. I'm good. envious because I know how much you've got ahead of you, and I yeah. think, oh, the pleasure to be back there in those yeah, early, right. early heady days of season <laughs> one. 
Um, so, yeah, so back to some of the reading that I did while I was on uh, election campaign. So the type of books I was looking for generally were things that were absorbing, would hold my attention, but an easy read and that I could just yeah. sort of... Go yeah, I've been going gripping. I want something that's a bit gripping. I want something that's plot-driven. 100%. I don't want anything too knotty and existential. Exactly. So I want a conclusion. You <laughs> <laughs> like the election, really. <laughs> so um, The One That Got Away by Carolyn Overington. Yes. Um, yeah, I've read that already. Oh, did we already yeah. discuss that in a podcast? Yeah. I, I talked about it at some length, which is probably why you can't remember. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> remember when we talked about how she's the greatest family law reporter? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, but what did you think? Moving right along. Uh, I, I fulfilled exactly like Perfect Holiday Read, fulfilled exactly yeah. the brief that you just said. Um, I also read this one, The Twisted Knot by J.M. Peace, um, who's an author that I've talked about before. This is her second book. Um, she is a, J.M. Peace is a nom de plume. She is a Queensland police officer who's writing oh, fiction. Wow. And so um, they're like crime thriller type things. And, again, just a good, pacey read that definitely held my attention. Then I read The Healing Party by Micheline Lee, oh, which is probably I've got my favourite. Oh, I've got in my pile, yeah. It was really, really good, and I highly recommend it. It's basically about a girl who's moved away from her family. She lives in Darwin. She gets a call. She has to come home because her mum's got terminal cancer. The family are all hardcore, born-again Christians, the father in particular. The father believes that Jesus is going to heal the mother, and so right. they organise, the father insists that they're going to have a healing party right. at their house at which the mother will be healed. Uh, and it's sort of the book... A lot of it is the build-up to the healing party and then the aftermath of the healing party. And it's incredibly gripping and a really interesting insight into the thinking of and people with sincere religious belief and um, how you deal with that at times of trial oh. and stuff. I love the sound of that book. I'm, gonna, I'm about to go on holiday for a couple of days, so I think I'm going to take it with me. Well, it probably Helen pass- Garner really likes it, which makes me think, if Helen Garner likes it, then I'm totally going to well, just it, read it. I would, it would have totally passed me by, except that I discovered that Micheline Lee, who wrote it, was discovered by Helen Garner and the former editor of The Age, Michael Gawenda, who were running a writing class or workshop right. or something, and she enrolled in it, and they thought, oh, this girl's got some talent, she needs some encouragement, and so, yeah. One day you'll get discovered by Helen Garner. I know. No. I could garner and go anywhere wrong. So that was really good. Um, wow, you've really smashed through a big pile here. Yeah. I did. Um, Nick Earls has, who oh, I'm right, a big yeah, fan of. talked about this little series before. Oh, have I? God, am I just repeating myself nonsense? A bit, but it's still adorable. <laughs> <laughs> Mummy's very tired. Um, you have talked a couple of times about the little Nick Earls, Earls series. Oh, okay. So there's like, he's publishing oh, a novel in six parts, but they come out in each little... No, it's, no, it's, just... it's five... 20,000 word novellas right. instead of one whole novel because he felt like well I've got more to say than a short story but I don't have a whole novel in me right. so why don't I just do 20,000 words it's the lazy writers you know <laughs> exactly so stop being so lazy read? Nick I've read one and a half right um, and I just I like Nick Earls' style it's yeah. pretty breezy he holds your attention exactly the same brief that we've been talking about before yeah. so if you see those floating around and you just want like again I just wanted something that wasn't going to immerse me too deeply and whatnot and that was just really good. He's always good quality. It could be a real plane flight situation too, couldn't it? Like, exactly. I love a bit of a something you can knock over in a... Well, you should just stick. take that with you. All right. There That's you what go. I was angling Given for. Given that you're going on a plane flight. Thank soon. you very much. Then I got a little bit darker. Then I got to um, Wasted by Elspeth Muir, who's a Brisbane writer. This was a really interesting book. It was a memoir. It is about 
her brother, who was in, when he was in his um, finishing off university, went out with a heap of mates, got drunk and drowned. Um, and she then explores her and her brothers and all of her friends' drinking behaviour and how much they drink and how much they go out and how they're going out is just tied to their drinking. Yep. And um, she starts exploring why, why do we do that? Like why do yeah. I think a good night out is when I'm, you know, throwing up in my own makeup bag the next morning or whatever. Like, um, and she then sort of uses it to, towards the end of the book, explores just drinking culture in Australia and whatnot. It's not judgmental at all. It's just an examination of her and her circle and what they do. It was very um, sad and compelling. Oh, God. I, because I drink too much, I will find that confronting. Um, so I'll read it and then hate myself a bit. Um, <laughs> there's uh, a book written by um, a journal who was at the Sunday Age at the time called Jill Stark called High Sobriety where she talks about her decision to give up drinking and she was like a really like life of the party constantly smashed kind of drinker and the book starts with her waking up on a Sunday morning and like not having much recollection of what's like she talks about you know all of these lost Sundays right right but it's a really interesting book because it talks about her experience of just deciding to quit and the changes that brought to her lifestyle, but also the changes that it brought to her friendships and the um, reaction that people around her had to her quitting drinking. And it's fascinating because there are heaps of people who found it very confronting and were a bit like, come on then, you know, come on, just have one drink. You know, it was really quite um, an interesting analysis into those sorts of like workplace cultures that are about like go and have a beer after work or let's yeah. get together and get smashed kind of things yeah, yeah. it's um it is hard that thing because like I've got one friend at the moment who wants to catch up but I know that when I catch up with him it's always like a big drinking night and I feel like <laughs> yeah. I feel too tired yeah. to do it and so and I so I just think uh, I know that that's I know that even if I go and I think I'm just gonna have one drink and come home that it's not going to be like that and so I just think oh I just I can't be bothered which is terrible because you really like him mm. what's well there's got to be something more to the friendship than having a lot of drinks surely yeah. and if yeah. there's not then why are you friends with somebody yeah so yeah. um yes so All then right. anyway so then the election was done so I thought mm, now I'm back in the mood for a little bit of something deeper have you ever read this book man's search for meaning by Victor Frankl no I have not no I haven't it was one of the most profound books I've ever read. Which library have you stolen that from, just by the way? <laughs> Excuse me? Bi- it's borrowed. Oh, oh, I see. Merrickville Library. Okay. <laughs> why, why would you think that I would have stolen it? Because I just saw the library stickers, and it's a very old book, so it looks like the kind of book that you once borrowed <laughs> and then forgot to return. I'm sorry. I love how... Even though how I'm did you somebody come on to who, how did you, how did you? I love how even though I'm somebody who, as you know, relentlessly throws out books, you think that somewhere in my personality is the type of person who goes and oh, actually yeah. steals. I think you steal it and then throw it out. You know, you're not fussy. Um, Man's search for meaning. Um, it Are is... you okay, Salesy? <laughs> um, I would have thought that if you asked me, I would have said, oh, I've read over the years so much about the Holocaust and World War II that there's really no further insight that can be gleaned about the horror and the terror and how it impacted people and stuff like that. I was completely wrong. Like, I was completely, completely, completely wrong. This is the most profoundly insightful view. So this guy was a psychiatrist 
um, who ended up in Auschwitz and Dachau and four years in concentration camps. And so it's basically about what is the effect of you psychologically on being held in a concentration camp? So it's not a physical thing about, oh, we were starving and we were cold. It's actually what happens to your inner life when everything that makes you a human being is withdrawn. So you're, you have, you're dressed in rags, you're freezing, you're starving, you don't know where your family is, you're treated like an animal, no one treats you like an actual human being. Once you're reduced to that, what is... Um, the reason for living, like what is the reason to not commit suicide? And then he sort of explores this in great detail and the sort of thought processes and the use of humour as a survival mechanism, mm. the use of thinking about your past. Um, he, he had this really profound thing where he said for somebody, everyone had had this really bad day at the concentration camp and it was just one of the worst ever um, and they're all lying in their hut and someone who knows he's a psychiatrist knows that everyone's about to just you know lose it and he says can you talk to people about what is still the reason for going on and so he talks about I mean I probably should have just bookmarked it to read it because I won't be able to do it justice because he says it so amazingly he basically says because we're here in the present and we have the memory of our past to draw sustenance on in our relationships and our life and all the beautiful things we've seen um music we've listened to, art we've seen, nature, blah, blah, blah. And we also have no man can know what next week holds or what next year holds. And so we have the hope of the future because at some point this will end. You know, that might be in death, but there might actually be a future. And so no one knows what that is. So there is always the hope of the mm. future. And also there is still meaning in our suffering because it's part of our life experience and that it, it will then make us, you know, the people that we are in the future. And anyway, he, he says it in a much more poetic way than I just said it. But, um, oh, it's just really incredible. Like, and the humour too, like the use of black humour, he was saying this example of where um, when they would go to get their one meal a day, which would be this bowl of watery soup, people would be begging the person ladling the soup, ladle from the bottom, because like if there were yeah. peas or something, it would all go to the bottom. And people would be begging to get it from the bottom. And they were saying, they used to have a joke about when they'd be out of the concentration camp and they'd be at some posh dinner somewhere and they'd forget themselves and say, can you ladle from the bottom? Can you ladle from the bottom? And so, yeah, just the most incredible, like just the resilience of people and to, the resourcefulness of people to get through things. And so then he, when he left um, the concentration camp, when he was liberated, um, he then returned to his career um, as a psychiatrist and was the head of a, um, the University of Vienna Medical School and he had, like, lecturing jobs at Harvard and Stanford and all that sort of stuff. And he developed... He's considered, like, after Freud and Jung, it's, like, considered the third school of Viennese psychiatry mm. um, and it's his... This idea of finding meaning in life, external meaning, not, not like, psychoanalysing mm. your internal life... Um, is the sort of basis of his therapy, which is called logotherapy. Anyway, phenomenal. Wow, all right, I'm definitely going to read that. Yeah. Well, it's, you've covered a lot of territory in the last month or two. Because well, I said I didn't, never went out anywhere. Yeah, so I, well, I didn't go out either, and I only read a couple of books. <laughs> <laughs> Watch some telly. <laughs> you maybe got to do, like, um, more writing than I do in your downtime. Uh, downtime yeah, 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 yeah. So. Anyway, I, I don't know. Like, I just did a lot of working late at night and then sleeping. And, right. You know, reading two pages of whatever. I did um, – so I read uh, a book that I found in this kind of remainder bookshop that's quite near work, which is just like a – it's – I've got this real knack with that bookshop. I will always walk in and it's in the railway tunnel oh, yeah. um, between – Central and mm -hmm. the ABC. It's called Basement Books. Anyway, they it's like one of those 
huge sprawling jumbly ones not super jumbly it's got things like art supplies and right. you know but they've got a really good biography section they go in there mm. and you always like walk away with some you know weird biography that's sort of been reduced from 80 bucks to two dollars fifty or something <laughs> um a lot of my house is really crammed with that sort of rubbish um but i bought a book called i saw a man by a writer called Owen Shears. Mm. Never heard of the writer, never heard of the book. It just looked quite gripping. Um, and I was looking for something with a strong narrative. It, it, it was really gripping. It's about this guy who um, loses his wife. Um, he's a writer. He's completely devastated. He moves in next to... He moves back to London and he moves in next to a um, young family. And... They become really close. Um, they're kind of in and out of each other's houses. And then one day he goes around um, to the house next door um, and uh, to return, uh, to collect a screwdriver that he's lent to the guy um, next door. And the back door's open and he pushes the door and no one seems to be home. So he walks in and starts looking for them. And then something happens that is so dreadful that it completely changes his relationship with them, mm. his um, his ideas about himself, mm. and it kind of kicks into motion this really um, strange and quite traumatic series of events. And do it's you, really do you, gripping. Do they reveal mm. what the dreadful thing is? Or? No, not right away. Oh, okay. So you don't find out what actually happens. It's one of these sort of skipping around, kind of right. getting closer and closer to this sort of seismic event. Right goes through, you know, how he got to be there, how they got to be there. And anyway, it's... I, The point at which the traumatic event occurs, I almost lost it. Like, I was on the bus, and it was really upsetting. Oh, and no. Yeah, really. Like, I mean, I wouldn't... I'm sort of wondering whether I should put it in your pile to read or not, to be honest. Like, it's uh. quite... Yeah. Um, anyway, but it's, um, it's certainly fabulously gripping. I stopped reading it for about half a day after that happened because I just thought, oh, my God, am I going to cope with this? Oh, anyway, no. But, um, Is it worse than, um, what was that book I refused to read, Honey Yanagihara? Oh, no, 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 God, it's not even in the ballpark of that bad. No, oh, okay, no, no. okay. Um, yeah, so that was, um, you know, I love accidentally picking up books like that mm. and finding one that um, kind of works out. Um, the other book that I've just finished actually is the new Leanne Moriarty book, which is <sighs> Saving that for holiday. Soon, I think, but um, someone at the publishing company very kindly, I think, sent both of us a copy. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be a real, you know, and with the usual standard. Look, it's it's exactly as good as the others oh, in the sense I that it's. It. Um, it actually, it reminds me a little bit of the slap. Actually, it's kind of oh, it's got okay. that kind of structure. It's about these um, three couples, effectively, and um, they uh, there's sort of. Um, uptight Erica, who has uh, grown up, had this difficult childhood because her mother was a hoarder, still mm -hmm. is a hoarder. So she had this, she was an only child, her father left when she was young. And so she's had this sort of childhood full of shame and rats and, you know. Right. And the, the girl she was friends with at school, whose mother absolutely hammered her to be friends with this poor girl, um, was called Clementine. And um, so... Erica spent a lot of time growing up with Clementines, you know, perfect family. And Clementines right. are cellist now. Right. All the all the cast all the perfect girls are yeah. cellists. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the cast of this 
this is this is the the freaky witch power of Leanne Moriarty is that she has this kind of absolute ear into kind of middle class suburban mm. Australia basically, and in the same way that the slap kind of crystallised all of these tensions in ordinary families um, and other people's children and stuff like that, um, she really digs into that in this book as well. So there's an afternoon where um, these two women, Erica and Clementine and their husbands, go round to a neighbour's place for a barbecue um, and something happens yeah. that triggers an extraordinary series of events, etc., etc., etc. And, of course, in true Leanne Moriarty style, you don't know what the thing is right. until really, really significantly into the book. So oh, you're great. kind of, you know, she, she's like a maestro, this woman, of just playing on the tensions and sense of suspense, um, not in a kind of like full horror way, but just in a kind of a, a, a human psychological tension way yeah i think she's great because i completely agree that she does all that and i do like a good plot driven book but also like the quality of her, her writing's pretty yeah, good too yeah. like she's actually you know like sometimes i'll i'll read a pacey book with ordinary writing and i'll just ignore the ordinary writing because yeah. i love the plot yeah. plot driven nature of it whereas actually hers i think ticks all the boxes she's yeah. really great yeah so, yeah i'm saving that one for my holiday in a yeah it's weeks, good so. it's really good all righty well uh oh i've got one other thing too yes um and that is just an article that I read that I just loved so much. I think I tweeted it the other day. It's a New York Times um, sort of longer article uh, by Michael Shears. Anyway, it's called Obama After Dark. Oh, yeah, I saw that, but I didn't read it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, anyway, you know how when he got elected, um, Obama was really... I was always interested that he was very careful up front to say... I'm going to make sure that I keep some hours in the day to myself mm. for reading and reflection and so on. And I remember just thinking that is a really important thing to say. Also, good luck with that. But <laughs> he, um, so this writer has just basically covered what Obama does after sort of 7 p.m. Right. So he has dinner with his family and then he goes to the treaty room and locks himself in there for Which five room? out the treaty room. Right. And he locks himself in there for five or six hours every night and anyway this this article is full of brilliant detail but um he's effectively he's going through his brief for the next day just insane amounts of paper and um also watching sport right. and then reading novels um playing words with friends <laughs> no that really broke me up for some reason um but he says that he's really a night person right. and he enjoys the solitude. So basically, apparently this piece is all Michelle Obama kind of drops in every now and again, but basically <laughs> he doesn't go to bed until one o'clock in the morning. Wow, so he needs like four or five hours sleep, yeah. kind of style. Right, and um, the other, there's two details that I really liked. One is that um, he doesn't really drink anything apart from water and he does have a snack at some point during the evening, and the snack is always seven salted almonds. <laughs> never six, never eight, seven salted almonds. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that freaky? Um, and the other thing that I really liked about it was um, he, the writer's gone and talked to a lot of his friends and, like, that guy who used to be his body man, Reggie oh, Love, yeah. who has text 
messages, exchanges with him late at night about sporting events and so on. Oh, and the chef, apparently, at the White House plays pool with him for an hour every night just to unwind wow. after dinner. They just play pool. Very, very... That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And then there's this great bit where um, Rahm Emanuel, who obviously used to be his chief of staff, um, said that one of the most taxing parts of being president, obviously, is you have all of these decisions. And by the time they get to you, they're seriously mm. tricky decisions, right? And he said that he and Obama used to talk all the time about how taxing it was to have to make these kind of diabolical decisions all the time. And they always had this joke where they would have a plan after the presidency that the two of them would move to Hawaii and um, set up a T-shirt stall that only sold T-shirts that were white and medium size, <laughs> so that no one would ever have to make a decision. And so, apparently, like there would be all these times where they'd been having these making having to make this some terrible decision, and Obama would just look at Rahm Emanuel and say white, and Emanuel would just say medium. <laughs> but it made me think about that incredibly grueling part of leadership, which is apart from just having to go to all of the open days and shake people's hands and remember people's names and all that stuff that I'd find so terrifying. But also just the fact that you are the person who's at the end of the line. Oh. And so to make decisions is actually really taxing on a person. Um, I had a really interesting lunch um, yesterday with a woman called Juliet Burke who does, um, she's a partner at Deloitte's and she, I've never met her before, but I'm really interested in her because she does a lot of um, their unconscious bias training. Oh, yeah. Stuff. And she was talking about something called um, cognitive depletion, which I've not read much about. She's since sent me an article about it, which I look forward to reading, but um, about the effect of decision-making on the brain mm -hmm. and how um, when you're tired, it, you make bad decisions because you've basically run down the energy that you have in your brain for making decisions. And we were talking about how um, sometimes it can be as simple as reorganizing your life so you make the decisions in the morning or you, you oh. so uh, as I was reading this Obama thing I was thinking god he must make a lot of decisions late at night I wonder if that's sensible anyway hard to know that's really really interesting I must go I favorited that I must go and have a look at it can you go and oh, write it. Turnbull at night <laughs> <laughs> just crying all the time crying at the moment probably <laughs> I think I read in the paper that they go to bed very early I just don't know. <laughs> no, no, actually, um, well, during the campaign, he was going to bed at 9 p.m. Right. And then um, tried to get a full night's sleep and then getting up at 5. That's pretty good. Yeah. I, he's else. not one of these mentalists. Who Four hours. Oh. I wish I was because it would be great to have that additional yeah. time to get stuff done. But yeah. Um, sadly... Yeah, I'm not that person either. No. I get sort of weird and screechy if I don't get seven hours, really. Same. Yeah. All right, well, good to see you. You talk to me or the Yeah, ministers? I talk to you. <laughs> you know they don't reply. Okay. <laughs> Bye. See ya.